Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Rui Teixeira. Rui is a sociologist, political commentator, who writes on many issues, mostly of party coalitions and American politics. He's senior fellow at American Enterprise Institute, and before that, he was at Center for American Progress. He has a PhD in sociology from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He's the author, author of numerous books, including the most recent one, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Um, in this conversation, I was super excited to talk with him. I have followed a lot of his writing, a lot of his work uh, on politics, on the Democratic Party, uh, but more specifically about uh, the kind of emerging um, movement of uh, many Latinos in the United States to the Republican Party politically. And I think that's been a really interesting and, and fascinating move and on the you know reasons why that is. And so he, he's been writing about that for a couple of years now. And I think he has the best pulse on on some of the underlying issues and reasons for that. And um, he he's just got a really nice kind of way of looking at uh, politics and trying to Look at how Democrats are doing things honestly. So we start by talking about um, Democrats this year in 2024, how they're running, uh, what they're running on, what their kind of program's about and, and what they're for. We talk about why, in many ways, Democrats have abandoned the working class voter and have kind of pivoted to college educated voters. We talk about immigration challenges with Democrats the impact of populism on the right and the left, Latinos shifting to the Republican Party, uh, many cultural issues, and uh, a whole slew of other topics. Again, I, I, I really, really was looking forward to this conversation, and it didn't disappoint. Uh, Rui is, is such, a, such a sharp mind on these things, and I, I really appreciate his, his viewpoint and really how he's trying to say, listen, uh, Democrats uh, have a lot they can they can show for you know their times in office and some of their their policies and many of the bills that are passed. Why, why aren't they doing that so much? And what's the kind of messaging? And what are some of the other dynamics? And so it's it's been uh, it was such a such a wonderful time talking to him about it and kind of uh, almost commiserating over some of the frustrations we have with with the party and, and on the left. And he's just fantastic. Um, you can find him over at his Substack as well, which is included in the show notes. I, I, I read it myself uh, weekly, so uh, it's great. You should uh, get the book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? And as always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. You can also find it on YouTube. Uh, so like, subscribe, uh, share, um, contribute if you'd like. I really appreciate when, when folks do that. It's very, very helpful. It makes the podcast better. Um, but really, it means a lot when people engage and they share with their friends and keep spreading the word. It's the best way that the, the podcast spreads is where it's word of mouth. So I really appreciate when people do that. And now I bring you Rui Cheryl. I'm here with Rui Teixeira. Uh, Rui, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to uh, to speaking with you. Okay, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have a, a fantastic book out uh, that I absolutely inhaled. I consumed it. It was it was fabulous. It's called uh, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Uh, the Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. Uh, this is with a co-author. Uh, what's the co-author? John, what's the co-author's name again? John B. Judas. Yeah, yeah. So, He's the guy I co-wrote the Emerging Democratic Majority with around 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so this you, is, in you, a way, it's a sort of sequel. Yeah, you guys, you, you make reference of that in the in the book, which is which is very interesting. Um, so yeah, before we get into it, uh, why don't you tell listeners just a kind of uh, brief uh, summary of you know who you are professionally, academically, and, and anything else, and any particulars you want to share with what you're doing now. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a sociologist by training, kind of a political sociologist out of UW-Madison. I wound up going the think tank route. I've been in the various think tanks. I've been at uh, Brookings. I've been at the Progressive Policy Institute, Century Foundation. And I was actually for a long time at the Center for American Progress, which is the largest kind of think tank on, on the left. It's sort of affiliated 
albeit informally with the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And I was there for almost 20 years, and then I decamped to the American Enterprise Institute, where I'm currently a senior fellow, mm-hmm. for, partly for, you know, a lot because of a lot of some of the things that are outlined in the book about how I felt the Democratic Party was losing its way, was adopting, you know, sort of various priorities and even language that, that were not really well designed to reach working class voters. And it was a stultifying atmosphere. So mm-hmm. I left. Hmm. Um, so I'm now at AEI, uh, and I also politics editor of the Liberal Patriot Newsletter, mm-hmm. which I urge everyone to subscribe to. Yeah, please, please um, subscribe. It's great. A contributing columnist to the Washington Post, hmm. and as as Avery was mentioning, new have a new book with John Judas, where have all the Democrats gone? And as you know, that title hmm. suggests, and my previous work suggests, primarily I study political coalitions, voting behavior, political demographics. Um, really trying to understand the ways in which the American electorate is evolving and the different party coalitions and how they're succeeding or not succeeding in, in, in building a majority. Mm. Um, so that's a lot what the new book is about, about how the Democrats, in a sense, have stalled out. Mm. Um, and Republicans and Democrats are now at these, these loggerheads where, despite the obvious weaknesses of each party, neither party can really uh, dominate the other, mm. I think is a fair statement at this point. Um, and now we're moving into this bizarre 2024 election <laughs> yeah. where we get this uh, yeah. Trump-Biden rematch, which yeah. I think is not exactly uh, <laughs> sort of the dream the dream matchup that most American <laughs> voters had in mind. So there we are. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the dream matchup. Uh, and um, I was going to say, you're... you're you're forever evergreen because, um, you know, it's an election year. So I'm sure there will be more themes of this on oh the podcast boy, yeah. and many podcasts and, and, and many people are talking mm-hmm. about things. So um, one of the things I appreciate about you is you do keep things kind of on uh, a lot of the, the numbers and the data and less about, you know, kind of rhetoric and ideology, which is, you know, pundits are kind of annoying in that way. So there is seemingly mm-hmm. a, a, a shifting uh, that has been kind of, percolating for some time, at least on the left with Democrats and, um, and <laughs> to no another extent on the right with Republicans. Um, so I guess for in this election year, um, what, what is the Democratic Party kind of looking at? I remember in, in, in 07, 08, people were very buoyed by you know, Obama and this great, you know, multicultural coalition and all different groups and classes. You can talk about this in the book as well. And, and, you know, 12 was fine. And then 16 just kind of, you know, it was like someone threw a grenade in the room and just kind of spoiled all of that. And and now here we are in 2024. Um, how, what, what's the state of the Democrats and what they're doing politically? Um mm-hmm. And why is it very bleak and negative at this point? I feel like they have a lot of things that they've done, but they can't sell it. They can't, they're losing people. So what's the state? What, what are we doing in, in 24 as we enter this election cycle? Right. Well, I think the, uh, the 2008 election does make an interesting contrast because that was an election that seemed to instantiate what John Judas and I talked about in our book, The Emerging Democratic Majority, where these various constituencies would come together that were uh, mourning and actually give the Democrats a significant advantage in a lot of national elections and that they were better positioned than the Republicans to respond to the changing demographic, economic, and ideological nature of America. And Obama was able to run on a pretty positive campaign, right? Hope and change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, we're moving into a different America. We're not, there's no blue America, red America, black America, white America, one America. And we can move together towards something that's a lot better. Now, contrast that with today. Uh, and it does, it is quite a contrast because I think both parties are essentially going to run on how awful the other party is. And that <laughs> includes the Democrats who are, as far as I can make out, uh, they're going to run on two main things. One, Trump is really bad and a danger to democracy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, Biden is now elaborating that theme in many different ways, and with he's not sparing the rhetoric. Um, and the second thing is abortion rights. Republicans are going to take away abortion rights. So those are two primarily negative takes on the Republicans. And obviously, the Democrats did manage to accomplish a fair amount legislatively under Biden's first term, but 
most people aren't paying that much attention or they don't even know that much about a lot of these uh, so-called accomplishments. And people's views of what the administration has managed to accomplish and about the economy are quite negative. So they're, you know, they would love to run in the economy. They would love to run in their accomplishments, but they're not quite sure how to, how to do it. So they're going back to the tried and true, which is to run on democracy and abortion rights. And that somewhat connects to some of the themes of the book, where we talk about how the, the party, as a, in terms of its strategy and its orientation toward this different demographic groups, has really shifted away from the working class and toward moderate to liberal college-educated voters, which is really what they built their current uh, majority, such as it is, on. Um, they've been losing working class voters left and right for a number of years. Uh, big time in 2016, building on previous losses. That's how Trump got to be president in the white working class. And then we've seen since then an attrition among non-white working class voters. So generally speaking, the Democrats, while they still purport to be the party of the working class and the party that is for the welfare of working people, et cetera, the working people themselves are less sure about that these days. and They're not giving them their votes the way they used to. So what do Democrats rely on? They rely on the more, you know, the college-educated part of the population, which is much more sympathetic to their views, their cultural priorities, and so on. Um, and we're seeing that, I think, coming into this election, that that great divide that opened up in the United States in the late 20th century, which became accentuated in, in this century, um, is something Democrats are, are somewhat accepting of, I think. I mean, education, polarization, what can you do? The people, the working class people are bailing out on us. They're not, they're not the good people. <laughs> they're not the people of the right point of view on a lot of these issues. They're manipulated by Fox News and by Donald Trump. Um, and and our, you know, basically, we just have to run on who we are, which is the anti-MAGA, you know, pro-abortion rights party. Uh, and we're the party that's for the glorious multicultural, multiracial future, which awaits us all. And if you don't like it, screw you. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, you're absolutely right. This is exactly how they're running it. And I don't understand why. I, I, isn't it, shouldn't it be, certainly you should hit Trump hard for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lane for that. But at the end of the day, there's, that's not really, that's not really a, a, a winning kind of thing of like, you know, the orange man is bad and vote for me. Like, you're not really selling yourself. You're just saying how the other guy sucks. And it's like, okay, like, Sure, mm -hmm. and that's there's an angle for that, and I and I've heard this other thing about the abortion rights thing. I know there was a big deal in 22, and and it really, you know, I think kind of surprised me. It was a big deal in, uh, in, in a lot of ways for that, and obviously Roe v. Wade, you know, a lot of momentum on mm -hmm. that. But I just don't think that issue alone <clears throat> is going to get people out to vote for an 81, almost 82 year old Biden. I think it's. I think there's a there's some of that for sure. I think for suburban mm -hmm. women, that's sure of of you know maybe right and left a little bit, but I don't really see that as enough. I guess. And then I guess second to that is why aren't they, why aren't they selling their economic package? I mean, in in many ways, the infrastructure bipartisan infrastructure bill was or is. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a white working class bill. I mean, if this was, uh, you know, if, if Trump or any other, you know, Bush or any other Republican would have done this, I mean, they would have been blasting this nonstop. I don't understand how it's not like they don't have legislative wins. Overwhelmingly mm -hmm. across the country, you get outside of D.C. or New York or L.A. and you go around to small towns across the United States. People care about three things all the time, economics and jobs education and healthcare. So why mm -hmm. aren't they selling that? Why are they relying on this guy sucks? They're going to take away your rights for, for women's rights, but not all of these like kind of legislative wins that they have. Why aren't they using that? Well, I think that gets back to, uh, you know, what I was previously alluding to, you know, it's in a way the Democrats have had this like long goodbye to the working class. It really does start in the late 20th century. The decline of the labor movement is very important in terms of removing a cultural anchor from the Democratic Party that kept them more focused on how working class people actually think about the world. Um, and, you know, the Democrats did sign on in the late 90s and, you know, actually until very recently with the Biden administration, what you might call a soft neoliberalism mm -hmm, in terms mm -hmm. of their economic approach, primarily oriented for markets, don't interfere with business. Yeah. Um, we must maintain business confidence. We can't spend too much money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And none of that really went over that well with working class voters, because even if they may have had their own, you know, sort of reservations about taxes and government, they still wanted government to help them somehow. Hmm. And I think they felt a lot of these voters felt the Democrats gave up on them. So Democrats over time have evolved away from being even that connected to working class concerns and even that connected certainly to their culture hmm. intending, as I say, to look down on them in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that moves them away from making a serious effort to try to pitch their economic program such as it is and what it's accomplished to these voters. Because you know, I, I think in the way they get easily frustrated, hey, look, we tried talking about Bidenomics. Remember that? <laughs> you know, it's like, have you heard the good news, brother? Bidenomics, um, which maybe wasn't a great idea because it combined two things people didn't like, Biden right. and the state of the economy. Right. They called it Bidenomics. People mm -hmm. said, no, nah, I don't, you know, I'm not signing up for that. So I think that was very frustrating for them. And there's a ton of Democratic-oriented commentary, which basically they can't understand why people aren't happy. It must be because they're being manipulated or misinformed. And what can we do about that? It's almost like they, they feel hopeless about it. But one way I think about this, Xavier, is if you look at the, what Democrats have said about the economy of the United States for the last several decades, they've been talking about inequality. They've been talking about neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They've been talking about communities devastated by economic change. They've been talking about you know, how working class people are in many parts of the country being left behind. Why would they expect that to turn around Mm -hmm. In like two years. Right. Right. right? right. I mean, it's going to be hard to make the sell and you have to be very careful about how you pitch yourself. Uh, and if people are worried about rising prices, uh, for example, don't act like, well, you know, that's that's over. Yeah. 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 Inflation was transitory. Everything's great now. You should be happy. Uh, but people inflation's a killer for most working class people. And they still haven't forgotten the spike in the first part of the Biden administration. They still haven't forgotten how much prices have risen since Biden took office. And they do have a comparison point to some extent of the Trump yeah. years before mm -hmm. the, the pandemic mm -hmm. when inflation was stable and real wages and incomes went up faster than they have under Biden. So I just think it's hard for them to like accept the fact that we're really going to have to work hard to make our case on the economy, on prices, on health care. We've got to focus on that like a laser right? and we can't give up. We've got to repeat ourselves constantly and we got to have some faith that we can reach a significant amount of working class voters by doing that. But I think that, you know, the low hanging fruit for Democrats, and again, this connects to their changing demographic base being much more among college educated voters in metro areas, we'll go for the low hanging fruit. You know, mm -hmm. these people hate, you know, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. These people are absolutely apoplectic about abortion rights. So let's talk a lot about that. Let's make sure we get those voters out to the polls. Um, and we'll hope that at, at the end we can uh, sort of nudge ahead of Donald Trump and the Republicans on that on that basis. So I, I don't see that changing, to be honest, too much between now and 2024. I think they're kind of locked into their strategy. I mean, look at what Biden's going around talking about. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, he sounds uh, like it's the Weimar Republic, yeah, 1932, right? Yeah, the stormtroopers uh, are about to, like, uh, take over your town, you know, so vote for me. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's not. I saw that, and I, I just, I'm like, my hands are in my face. And I'm like, that's not the way. It, it is more divisive for people that legitimately, it's, it's, a, it's coming from a place of, not really trying to understand why 70 million plus people are going to vote for Trump again, because right. he's actually talking to their concerns. And the difference here, which I can't understand, is you have legislative wins. Look, you, mm -hmm. I, I talk to people all the time and they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unemployment, inflation's down, unemployment's down. OK, you know, mm -hmm. the interest rates and OK, yeah, stock market's up and yeah, and all that, I hear that. Okay, but you know what? It doesn't feel like the economy is doing good. I, I'm still paying $8 for eggs at the store, and that right, it doesn't right, feel exactly. like that, right? Okay, so you go around the country. Instead of saying, like, it's, you know, the Fourth Reich, you go around and you say, listen, right. we get it. The, the, the pandemic really, really hit us. It's, it was like another kind of depression almost. It, it really hit us. It hit us hard. We have a lot of work to do. I feel your pain. I know it's expensive. I know we're trying. But let's look at the trend lines here. We're not there, mm -hmm. but we're getting there. We're going to give me four more years and we're going to be, you know, like 
really acknowledge their pain, acknowledge it doesn't feel great, but there's been some progress and keep it all economics because here's, here's what I understand. These places in the Rust Belt states are, mm-hmm. are still working class people. And they're, they're, you know, it's not just white folks, but there's white and black and Latino working class people. Mm-hmm. You can't not, not talk to those people and just talk to college educated folks. Like you just can't do, you, know, you can't, the, the math doesn't add up when the electoral college hits and we're looking at Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, maybe Ohio and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, you need six, seven states to win the election. And like, why right. would you right. not talk to their concerns, especially if, uh, you know, Hitler reincarnated in Trump as, as how it sounds, right? is going to do that. He's going to talk to them just on those things and be like, remember the good old years with me? Yeah, right. it was a little crazy, but we had a good economy, right? You had jobs, mm-hmm. right? Gas wasn't this. Eggs were $4. And, and that's, that's not untrue. He's, he's got a rap. He's got a rap. And I think Democrats really underestimated to their peril. I mean, if there, there's a, a, broad, a, a number of polling findings that are absolutely gobsmacking in this respect. If you ask people, who did a better job with the economy, Biden so far, or Trump when he was president? You get like 20 point advantage for Trump. Of course. And yeah. that includes among even more among working class people, among Latinos. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just like serious stuff, man. Or like, you know, did the policy have the policies of the Biden administration helped or hurt you? More people say hurt than help. Mm-hmm. And the policies of the Trump administration hurt or help you. Most people say help. Mm-hmm. So this is like, Obviously, like kind of a problem. You mm-hmm. need to like chip away at that mm-hmm. as best you can mm-hmm. and not act like, well, okay. But, you know, on the other hand, you realize that we're about to, you know, have the Fourth Reich, as, as you were putting it. <laughs> yeah, right. I think, again, for like the college educated liberalish people in places like New York and Austin and Seattle and lots of places, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, my God, we got to stand up and stop this fascist from taking over the U.S. But, um, that's how they feel. Mm. You got, but you have to deal with the electorate you have, mm-hmm. not the electorate you would like. To exactly. Have, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I just think Democrats really have a hard time with that, and I think it reflects the way the party itself, <clears throat> as I was saying, has evolved over the last several decades. And importantly, what we talk about in our book, the shadow party, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the penumbra of activist groups, nonprofits, um, foundations, academia, good chunks of the media. I mean, they're all kind of the amen corner for the Democrats on mm. a lot of this stuff. Mm. And they're very much bought into the cultural transformation of the Democratic Party. Um, and it really influences the Democrats not to pay attention to the actually existing views of working class people and how complicated they are and how they feel Democrats look down on them and don't really speak to them. <clears throat> I mean, look, if, if Trump is as dangerous as people say, this is one of my favorite themes. OK, let's say he's Hitler Hitler light or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, don't we need a popular front against Trumpism? Why aren't you compromising on everything under the sun to get that <laughs> marginal voter out there who's, who doesn't has questions about you and think you're too far out on certain issues? You know, just sell out, man. Just, you know, compromise on everything and try to get as many people into the tent as possible if the stakes are as high as you say they are. But here's the weird thing. The people who are most hysterical about Trump are precisely the people who don't want to compromise on anything. Yeah. Yeah. So go figure, right? right? I mean, well, like the people on the border stuff, the immigration bill, the Republicans <laughs> are trying to cut uh, on Ukraine and Israel aid. And the border, the reason there hasn't been a deal so far is not because the Republican, in my opinion, the Republican ideas are so crazy. It's because there's an, a big sector of the party and the activist groups that are putting pressure on the party, the shadow party, that don't want any change, really. I mean, they, they think it's all, you know, to, to basically tighten up at the border and do basically tighten up the asylum system, do away with the parole thing or modify it. I mean, it's all the worst kind of xenophobia mm. and, um, and you know, borderline racism. So that makes it hard for the Democrats to make a deal, mm-hmm. even though they'd be well advised to do so. And that would put them more in the wheelhouse of a lot of voters. And this is an issue on which the Democrats are like a 20 point disadvantage. Yeah. There, to <laughs> me, there's, the there's best able to handle the issue. So what is the problem here? You know why this is politics 101. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we might come to immigration in a bit. I mean, I, I just don't understand. Like, the fact remains, for, there are reasons why, but there are four and a half million people that have come into this country illegally across the border in, since 2021. 
I mean, there's a, there is an issue. That's a lot of humans. There is an issue. Like it's, mm-hmm. and I just don't understand why. If you don't have a legitimate issue on immigration, if it's mm-hmm. some kind of we need to be kind to people and we need to help people out, and maybe some people say open borders. Well, that's not really a policy issue. And you got the other side just, I mean, basically giving them free points to saying, look, we got a plan. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And it might be the most draconian measures, but at least it's a plan. And people are like, well, listen, I mean, it's kind of extreme, but like the other side isn't even offering a plan. Right. The, the, the Democrats' plan is not to have a plan, right? right. I mean, like, how does you, that can, uh, you can make the argument that and it's very plausible. I mean, we need to overhaul the immigration system, change the mix of skilled and unskilled, have different criteria than we currently do. We need to modify the asylum and parole system. Mm -hmm. We need a system. We need an overhaul. Yes, yes. Um, But the people lying down on the railroad tracks about this stuff, really, they don't really want to change much Mm -hmm. because the way it's working now, if you're for quasi-open immigration and you feel like basically anyone who in some other country who feels oppressed, that lives in a disorderly, violent society or an economically poor society or both, mm-hmm. you know, we, we must welcome them all. Right. Well, you yeah. know, you can't welcome them. No, you it's can't. It's crazy. Yes. You know, countries have borders for a reason. And it used <laughs> yes. to be, wasn't that long ago, Democrats understood this a lot better than they do now. The Jordan Commission, which we talk about in our book, mm-hmm. which looked at the immigration system in the 80s, headed by Barbara Jordan, a Democrat, um, was basically tried to lay and a sort of set of a series of criteria for tightening up the immigration system, for implementing E-Verify. And basic, the, the basic premise was we actually need to tamp down somewhat on mm-hmm. levels of, of immigration. Mm-hmm. We need to really get the system under control because uncontrolled immigration puts pressure on low-wage workers, puts pressure on resources, and is you know, bad for us politically in many ways. And that shouldn't be the intent of our immigration system is just to let as many people in as possible. Mm-hmm. We have to think about the people who live here and work here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, you know, back to the Latino working class. I think one thing Democrats really don't understand is that a lot of Latino working class voters are not like 150% for having a you know, gazillion people come over the border all the time because they see it as, as not a benefit to them. But, but actually somewhat of a problem. Of course, the closer you are to the border, there's the pressure on resources and so on. So, you know, it, it's really kind of shocking in a way that uh, there's such resistance to trying to do something about this when it's so obviously, it, it's not even very left-wing. I mean, remember no, when it's not. Bernie Sanders used to talk about open borders. That's a Koch brothers plan, you know? <laughs> uh, right, he doesn't yeah. talk like that anymore because he's been taken over by the blob to some extent. Uh-huh. Well, not completely. I mean, I like Bernie, but, yeah, yeah. but he was really influenced in 2020 by mm-hmm. the way the party mm-hmm. had moved to the left mm-hmm. with all these mm-hmm. sociocultural issues, mm-hmm. and he kind of moved with them. But back when he was class against class, Bernie, I thought that was a, that yeah. was a better look. Um, but anyway, I want to I talk about like kind of coalitions of sorts and, um, mm-hmm. and and about populism. So we'll come to Latinos in a minute. But um, you, you give mm-hmm. this nice history in the book um, about you kind of start with FDR and the New Deal. And you talk about, uh, you know, Johnson era and you even talk a little bit about Clinton and things like that. And sure, there have absolutely. been you mentioned obviously Obama and stuff. There's been these these big kind of periods where Democrats really have had a pretty good coalition of different types of folks. And there was something interesting in, in uh, 2016 where many people that went for Bernie in 2016, especially in like Michigan and Wisconsin, they immediately switched to Trump. And it was, you know, populism is an interesting thing because, I mean, I'm not a big fan of populism, but I mean, I get it, but Mm-hmm. Populism is really kind of the same, left or right, right? The, the rhetoric is sort of similar. Some of the policies for when they are there are, are similar. There are differences. I'm not saying they're, they're exactly the same, yeah. but mm-hmm. it doesn't, it, otherwise it wouldn't make sense that someone that's going to be a Bernie bro and at a rally and, you know, stomp the 1% is going to be like, well, you know, he gets, uh, you know, booted off the island here, so to speak, and we got Hillary Clinton. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to Trump. Because he was doing another brand of populism. So, again, so this is, you know, eight years ago now. Where do you think, in terms of coalitions, so we can talk about the populism in the Midwest and, and kind of working class there, uh, white working class, at least for, for a minute. Where do you think that that is, right? Because even if you look at, like, so-called, um, you know, MAGA world, right? 
you know, people vote for Trump for different reasons, right? You've got, yes, the very hateful, racist, xenophobic people, but that's not 70 million people that are that way. Many people voted. Some people I know voted for Trump just because of the Supreme Court. They knew he was going to get right. one or two picks, and that's a, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that paid off for those people very well. You know, other people, they voted him for different reasons. So what is these coalitions on kind of uh, the Republican side and the Democrat side currently? What does that look like? Right. Well, I think that, um, you know, that was really Trump's genius is realizing that what this country really needs, what the Republican Party really needs is a genuine populist politician, because he understood that the working class base of the Republican Party was expanding. Uh, and that these people were not happy campers. They basically, not only did they hate Democratic elites, which is part of the reason they were voting Republican, but they really were, they kind of hate Republican elites too. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to run against those people in the primaries, and I'm going to beat their ass, mm-hmm. which he did. He mm-hmm. managed to successfully portray them all as part of the establishment. Very easily. And then he had the perfect foil in Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of with her Wall Street speeches and her basket of deplorables and so on. And she was just like a poster child for Democratic elite. So he yeah. was able to run the same playbook, populist playbook against her and, you know, moved a lot of those white working class voters into the Republican column. And, you know, I think really we, the, the thing I think the Biden administration doesn't understand, a lot of Democrats don't understand, is the situation we're in is not that different now. Populism is still extremely strong. People really do hate the elites of both parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, in addition to this white working class problem, and it looks like Trump, if you look at the, the available data, he's doing about as well as he did in 2016, maybe yeah. even a little better. Mm-hmm. But he's also doing better among non-white working mm-hmm. class voters, mm-hmm. especially Hispanic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a mighty, potentially a mighty populist coalition. Uh, and I think the Biden people are acting like, you know, again, this is really all about saving democracy. And I yeah, that's just uh, not selling for, for me. People it is, but uh, but you know, for a lot of these voters who do respond to populism, the mm-hmm. kind of people who would have gone for Bernie and then for Trump, the kind of people who look around today and say, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that happy with Biden. Maybe I'll vote for RFK Jr. Maybe I'll wind up voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they hate them all. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so Trump is better able to portray himself as the outsider populist who's going to tear down the elites, even though I think his actual record of Doing stuff is not that great, but uh, you know that's not how elections are frequently decided. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that is kind of where we are are now, where that working class size hold of the Democratic coalition that was blasted to some extent by Trump's populist message is still there and is even arguably widening in some ways and somewhat counterbalanced. Again, if you look at the data, Democrats are doing even better than. Biden and, and uh, Hillary Clinton did in 2016 among college educated mm. So the mm. two, two things are moving in different directions. But here's the problem. You know, like 65% of the voters in this country are non-college educated. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you get equal sized moves for the Democrats and toward the Republicans among these respective groups, it nets out very poorly yeah. for the Democrats. And yeah. I think that's, that's the potential problem they have in this election. No, they say, oh, well, you know, by the time the election is held, Trump will have said all these stupid things and we'll have another year to you know, sort of dump on him and people will come around, especially Hispanics, especially young people, especially et cetera, et cetera. So, I, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's such a, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know who's in Biden world that that's, that's saying this stuff because I just think it's really delusional. Number one, if you have a, such a sizable percentage of the electorate is still non-college educated, you have to go talk to those people. They're still going to go vote. Number two, especially if the other guy's going to do it. Number two, this whole, like, let's save democracy. I just don't, it's not convincing to me. The third thing on this is that, you know, you need to have, you know, people moved for something and people are kind of uh, dulled with, I mean, Trump's not as extreme anymore. Like people know who he is. They know he's going to say wild shit. No one cares. Right. He's not even online that much anymore. Like, so people are just kind of like, ah, he's not that bad. We're used to it now. I just don't think that's going to be so important. Again, I think this is something that people who make democratic party policy and strategic decisions and sort of the activists put pressure on the party don't understand because for them, whenever Trump makes a statement that's widely publicized, it's, 
fairly awful. Mm -hmm. They're like steam comes out of their lips. They're just like so <laughs> upset. But what they don't realize is out there in the vastness we call America, especially among working class folks, is like, it's just like water off a duck's back. Mm -hmm. They don't really give a shit. No, you know? they don't. I mean, pardon my French, No, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't. And it's just because it's just noise. It, right. It's, it's just just, that's exactly what it is. And at the, at the end of the day, at least he's talking to me. He's telling right. me what, you know, yeah, you know, we're going to get rid of the elites. We're going to do these things. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. He, he evokes feeling in masses of people that people can get behind. And, you know, I think some of, you know, talking about elites and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I think all this stuff with the pandemic really soured people even more for institutions and elites, you know? And, and so I, I actually think, you know, when people say, oh, he's polling better than 2016 or the same or better, it's like, yeah. And yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, that's not surprising at all. So, so, yeah. so let, the pandemic thing I think is important actually, and actually yeah. is a uh, uh, significant influence on especially Hispanic voters, I actually mm -hmm. think, because Democrats became associated with locking down the country and the economy for a longer time than was really necessary. I think it's pretty clear. And that screwed up a lot of people in terms of their livelihoods. And, you know, they closed the schools way too long. Yeah, way too long. I think um, most people agree I, on that. That really hurts working class people the of course, most. Of course. So, you know, it's like Democrats, like they, they think they've got this little halo over their heads because of how they did in the pandemic. But that's not the way a lot of normie voters see it. They think the Democrats went overboard. Not that they didn't think it was COVID was a problem, but they just like feel they were dragooned mm -hmm, mm -hmm, into, mm -hmm. you know, doing these things. And these policies were uh, sort of laid on them. Uh, and a lot of them didn't seem to work that well in the long run. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they really don't trust them, really, mm -hmm. yeah. I think, yeah. on, on an issue like this. And I think the Democrats felt like, well, once the pandemic went away, everything would be fine. But I think these things have lingering effects. Mm -hmm. They do mm -hmm. in terms of how people view the different parties. So, yeah, I, I, I would fully agree with that. I think that a lot of people feel it might not be front of mind, but I think a general like. Do you trust people in politics or institutions? I think when it comes, like you see exit polls and it comes like that, that's where that kind of stuff kind of filters back up. And it's like, oh yeah, last time we had kind of a big crisis, like, like they went overboard. I don't want that right, again. Like, right. you know, so I think it maybe it shakes out there. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. So let's talk about Latinos. So okay. um, cool. uh, as I, as I've, as I've told you, so, you know, I think um I've been very frustrated for the past four or five years uh, with how Democrats work with Latinos. Um, so, you know, I'm first generation, you know, my eggs hatched here, but, you know, my dad came here from Central America um, in the early 80s. And I think out of everybody that writes about the interaction between Latinos and Democrats, I mean, you've, you've had, you've had, uh, you've had the, the, the right uh, calculus. Your, your pulse on this is perfect, I think, pitch perfect on on what's going on here. So you can talk about this, but in your mind, I think it really started around 15, 16, and you can talk about that if you want. And then where we're at currently, but what kind of big picture here for a minute, why do you think people are, I'm not, but a lot of people are, and that's, a, that's a problem in itself. People are surprised when they see or hear Latinos shifting to Trump or Republicans or already there. And, mm -hmm. and, and my kind of approach to this is if I meet someone and I don't really know them and I know they're, you know, first or second generation Latino, I expect them to be kind of Republican, the center right or more right mm -hmm. based on how things are at the moment. So that's kind of my prior. and People are always surprised by that. Why do you think we've seen a bigger shift with Trump in 16? And then, you know, there was some, you know, it wasn't as bad in 20 or 22, but it was still not as great. Why are we seeing Latinos doing that? Well, I think, yeah, a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the population. I mean, obviously, a very variegated population with a lot of different countries of origin. But I think, to some extent, Democrats like looked at things like exit poll results and other things, say, oh, look, this is a two-to-one Democratic group. I mean, they're like ours, right? I mean, mm -hmm. all we got to do is run some Democrat out there because uh, we're the pro-immigrant party. We're the party that's against racism. Um, we just got to keep doing the, you know, the voodoo that we do, and, and we'll keep them, keep all those Hispanics voting for us. But one thing that they didn't, I think, understand is one, 
Hispanics are not a particularly liberal population, just in terms of ideology. Most are moderate and a big chunk are conservative. Mm -hmm. And they were voting above their ideology for the Democratic Party. So these were always votes who are not 100 percent secure Mm -hmm. uh, because the Democrats are in a way getting a premium out of these voters. And, you know, that relates to why did people vote for? Yeah, because they were more somewhat more friendly to immigrants, certainly against discrimination. But they were the party was for the Hispanic community, for working class communities patriotic, upwardly mobile, concerned about their kids, their community, healthcare, what have you. I mean, they were just better for people like us than the other side. But, you know, that's different than thinking of them as people of color, which became very prominent in the mid-teens and, you know, is still with us today. Oh, you know, they're basically part of this mass of non-white people in the United States who, you know, are just a bubble with resentment about this country and they don't really... They think they live in this dystopian hellhole we call America and the brown people and black people are just oppressed every day. And, you know, what Democrats are about is we're going to lift up these people against the scourge of white supremacy. And this is like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to, to get ahead in the world. I'm here to, you know, make something of myself and my family. I mean, I like America. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. What's the problem here? Mm-hmm. So uh, I just think that dissonance that starts developing between the way Democrats are thinking about Hispanics and the way Hispanics think about themselves. And, you know, they just are a fundamentally a working class community mm-hmm. who think of themselves as just who they are. Mm-hmm. They don't think of themselves. It's completely ridiculous. So um, I think that starts moving a lot of these voters towards, in a sense, voting their ideology, voting their relative conservatism on some issues, and basically just looking at the other party and saying, well, you know, maybe it's, Maybe my default option of voting for the Democrats was not correct. Maybe mm-hmm. I need to, to less open my mind and think about who's doing whatever you know, for me and my family and my community and you know, get rid of that presumption that I'm going to vote Democratic. And I think once you do that, you know, that spreads, right? It becomes more permissible mm-hmm. to vote Democratic, vote against the Democrats, to vote for the Republicans. And, you know, they, don't, they don't process the kinds of things Trump says as you know, the kind of way, you know, white college educated voters mm-hmm. process it. It's just, oh, or they think about, hey, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, he's uh, mm-hmm. he's telling it like it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't agree with everything, but at least he's not a bullshit. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I think that's huge. Yeah. And I think then when you walk into like how well Hispanics did economically in the first part of in the Trump years before the pandemic, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, there were tight labor markets then too. Wages and incomes were going up. Um, you know, it's, it's looked back with fondness by a lot of Hispanic working class voters today. So I think it all, the kind of the broad concept here is Democrats had this assumption that, you know, Hispanics belong to them. This is a community that's primarily concerned about immigration and being people of color. Mm-hmm. And that was just completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that is not the way they experience the world, not what they think about. It. It's not what they get up in the morning and... No, it's not. (laughs) It's definitely not. It's uh, a a few things here. I mean, I've talked about a little bit here for for listeners. I think it's hard. I have a kind of resistance. I mean, you tell me what you think about this, but of the the Latino votes, I mean, I I understand that you have to kind of, you know, kind of draw lines around something. But I I just think that Latino as a as a as a group is really hard to do, even in the United States. I mean, there's over 22 countries in Latin America that are uh, Spanish majority, Spanish speaking. But, you know, a lot of people in the United States don't realize that, you know, Guatemala is demonstrably different than Chile and, and Dominican Republic Mm -hmm. is demonstrably different than Nicaragua, right? Like there's, there's, I mean, there's some similarities, right? The food, the language, the music, whatever, but there is difference. There's big difference. And then you, you, you kind of put more uh, onto that is, well, what, which uh, wave of immigration did you come here and why? Right. Are you coming here from what Central America because of civil war and, and poverty? Are you coming here on a, on, a, on a work visa from Argentina or from Brazil or wherever else? Or are you, um, uh, are you coming here from Mexico to get from, from drug lords and from, from poverty? Are you coming from Cuba Third generational wave, not from 1960, not from 1990, but like, you know, 2005, you know, and you've already got, you know, three, you know, grandma's living over here in South Florida. Like there's just so much difference in waves of immigration, countries of origin, 
and then where you root in the United States. So living outside of Los Angeles is much different than living in South Florida, which is different than, you know, Puerto Ricans and Dominican Republic and uh, people from the Dominican Republic that have lived in New York for, you know, many, many years. Uh, that's different from West Texas and out in Nevada. So like, let, and even, you know, Latinos that live everywhere in, you know, Pennsylvania and even in the Midwest, like, I don't know how you conceptualize Latinos, like the Latin vote in that way. I just, right, you can't right. really do it. I think you have to kind of do it sort of geographically. No, you have to kind of say Latinos are in this community. They're in Arizona or they're in West Texas or South Florida. What's going on in that community that are their issues? And in that way, many Latinos, if you will, do kind of align with like a white or black working class mindset. Many of them come right, here for economic right. reasons and they're working with, you know, poor or, or, or middle-class whites and poor middle-class blacks. That's much different than you, know, you go ask a, a, somebody from, a, you know, from Honduras that's living in Minnesota and they're working, you know, at, at McDonald's and maybe they got another job. What do they think about the border or what do they think about being a person of color? Like, I don't give a shit. Like, I got I got bills to pay and I'm, and I'm sending half of this yeah. back home Like, because like, my family right. needs it. Like, how do, we, right. how do Democrats kind of conceptualize, I guess, Latinos a little bit better, more accurately, and then speak to, like, them as working class people mostly? How do they, how, how can they do that? Right. Well, I think you're right. I mean, as Latinos, Hispanics, I mean, it's a convenience category. It, it melds together tons of people from different countries, origins, generations, what have you, uh, you know, that have this sort of overarching commonality, which isn't much of a commonality for this big a group. Yeah. So I think, that, I think if you start thinking about them in the way you're talking about it, like specific communities, specific groups, specific geographical areas, specific countries of origin, I think that it forces you to start thinking about them as the people they are and the lives they actually live rather than this made up, you know, sort of commonality of oppression they supposedly all share. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be very useful for Democrats to, to take that more seriously. And frankly, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of snake oil being sold mm. to Democrats by various consultants who claim they have a, a handle on the Latino vote, mm -hmm. uh, when precisely for some of the reasons you're outlining, you know, that vote is, is so variegated and so sort of complex in composition to really talk about it as Latino vote is something we should be very careful about. And there are no magical solutions. And if there is, the best solution is just to understand them, who they are, where they are, what they care about. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. hard. There isn't a one size fits all here. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's part of the problem. Yeah. And I think it's, it's led the Democrats down some, some paths that have not been productive for them. My, my, uh, my dad used to say something all the time. People would ask him like, Oh, you know, where, where, where do you kind of stand on things politically or whatever? And, and my dad used to say, but the, my party is the one that, uh, keeps me with work and jobs going. That's my party. That, that was always there, his answer. That, that was his answer. Your, your dad had it right. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's, and I think that's just a thing. I, I wrote a piece in Newsweek a couple of years ago about how we should conceptualize basically Latinos, mostly not everybody, but mostly, mm -hmm. uh, as how we talk to working class people in, in, uh, you know, Southern Virginia or, or, you know, Northwest Pennsylvania, or not, if you were to talk to Latinos more that way, generally speaking, I think you would see more results because honestly, in terms of, uh, uh, in the electorate, you talk, you've written about this a lot, you know, Trump's getting Trump. higher numbers with non-educated Latinos. He's, there was that 16 point shift to Trump and this is with Cubans right. and Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. Um, you know, Pew Research, obviously, you know, they put out good stuff and they're showing that Latinos care about economy and healthcare. I mean, those th things are always at the top. Um, immigration's like fifth or sixth. Like, it's not, right. a, it's not something top of mind for them. Right. So it's even farther. Down. Yeah. I mean, so how do we, I mean, yeah. it's, it's been kind of worse. So for this year, you're, you're, you're advising the Biden campaign and, you know, we need to get, you know, uh, 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 Latinos to get in the polls and vote for us. You know, Rui, what do, what do you, what should we do? What should, you know, the Biden campaign comes, what do we do? What do we do for 2024? Um, top of the ticket and even bottom of the ticket for, and we're talking about in certain um, uh, districts right. and even for states or for senators, how should Democrats kind of talk to Latinos so they're not flirting over 
going with to the right? How, how sh- what should be the answer? Well, I think it's really what we were talking about before, isn't it? I mean, sort of really digging down into their day-to-day concerns around the economy and healthcare and prices and putting things in front of them that suggest you get it, you care, mm. you actually have something that looks at least sort of like a solution or you've done things that are actually, you know, have an effect uh, and don't basically run on, you know, protecting democracy and abortion rights. I mean, you should talk about that some, but mm-hmm. make the focus of what you say different. Mm. You know, appeal to those voters where they are because they're not, they don't get up in the morning and think about, you know, how they, you know, we're at, this is the Weimar Republic 1932 <laughs> and Hitler is about to take power. They just don't. Right. So, okay, yeah. accept that. Maybe you think they should. That's fine. You can think whatever mm-hmm. you want. Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. about them the way they are mm-hmm. and talk to them where they are. And I think uh, that'll lead to a much more productive relationship with these kind of voters than they currently have because, you know, it's not working. At least to me, we look at the polls right now. It doesn't seem to be working. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the happy talk is by the time November 2024 <laughs> rolls around, they'll all come, come back, you know, come home mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the Democrats because mm-hmm. they'll realize Orange Man is bad mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Democrats are really great. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I, but, but I think they'd be well advised to not wait that long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, voters are you know, starting to tune in. I mean, obviously it won't really get going totally until the fall, right. but so far, not so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it does reflect Democrats mistakes and how they're thinking about these, these voters yeah. and the image of the party and how that the party appeals, uh, appears to these. voters. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree. Uh, so two final questions here. Uh, okay. you, you talk about, um, in the book and we won't traverse it mostly because I find these topics uh, overplayed. I, I love the way you guys treated it and handled it, but you talk about many cultural issues. You talk about, you know, uh, George Floyd in 2020, the pandemic, BLM, you know, kind of gender issues, you know, sensationalism around climate. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, people have had different answers for this, um, you know, it's media, it's social media, it's the internet, it's, you know, whatever. And I think those definitely have impact. But why do you feel like there's, I think there's really well-intentioned people out there, but a lot of the times, at least for the Democrats, they get very kind of uh, this sort of audience capture where a few folks really talk and pull on their heartstrings of sorts. And and on the cultural issues, it becomes so radioactive where it's just, sure. you can't have a kind of moderate balance. You know, if I care about climate change at a six, if I'm not, if I don't care about it at a 12, then I just don't care about it. You're not on our team and, and just literally take every issue, race, gender, all these cultural oh, issues. Yeah. If you, if you're, you know, against discriminating against, you know, trans people, mm-hmm. then, you know, that's not enough. You've got to actually support so-called gender affirming care and, right you know, biological males competing on women's teams and all mm-hmm. that. There's a whole vector of things you're supposed to agree to if you're a good person. Right. And this is insane. Most people don't believe this stuff. Right. Most working class people don't no, believe this no, stuff. <laughs> so why are you doing this? Why are you insisting so, so the, that it's not enough just to be a tolerant person? <laughs> right. you know, this person. is my question. Why do they do uh, this? Why do they go full, like, all the way on this stuff? I mean, right. that's not to say the well, right I, I think there's two, two basic reasons. But, but yeah, yeah. One is... Uh, you know, the shadow party, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the extent to which the Democrats have become influenced by the shadow party, this group of institutions, activist groups, nonprofits, academia, huge sections of the media. I mean, in a way, one, one way I think about it sometimes is that they control the commanding heights of cultural production. Mm-hmm. Democrats are really mm-hmm. responsive to that. So they're afraid. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're afraid to, to cross these people. And not only are they afraid, but partly because the, the messages a lot of Democrats who try to make decisions about things receive, it's almost like they get captured by these mm-hmm, ideas. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. they can't think outside of them anymore. They, they start falsifying their own preferences and discarding their own skepticism and say, oh, yeah, well, I, guess, I guess this is the way it has to be. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that um, underneath it all, I think if you push them, there's usually a political calculation, mm-hmm. which I think is wrong, but it's still there, mm-hmm. which is that, okay, yeah, well, maybe we have gone a bit too far in this stuff. Maybe we should dial it back. Maybe we should move to the center. I, I can see what you're saying. But if we did that, 
we would lose so many voters mm-hmm. on the left wing of our party who would sit out the election. You know, we would tank their enthusiasm and and we'd lose more than we gain. And I just think that's wrong. I, I think I, there's I, so I, many I, persuadable I, voters out there. Yeah. And, you know, where are these people going to go anyway? They're going to vote for they're going to vote for Trump. Right. right. I mean, most of them will still vote for the Democrats, even if you had a more reasonable position mm-hmm. on race and on immigration and on mm-hmm. trans issues and so on. But. You know, they're they're like a paper tiger, as I wrote in something I wrote recently. A lot of these groups basically act like they have control over tens of millions of voters. Mm -hmm. But here's a secret. They don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They speak primarily for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the foundations that fund them. I mean, so uh, I say take a risk, you know, see Mm -hmm. see what they got. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I think Democrats are still very timid about that. Yeah. And I don't expect that to change much between now and, and 2024. No, I don't, think so. I, don't, I don't think so either. But uh, I totally agree with you. Uh, my, that's my same response. It's like, OK, so it's not this you, because Biden's not talking about this thing or even not even him. Other people, it's not like they're going to go and vote for Trump or anybody on the Republican part. Like, so what's the are you afraid they're not going to vote? Yeah, you're going to get that every election. Like, I don't think it's going to yeah, be yeah, that yeah. amount of numbers. No, they, they, they really said somehow they envisioned this catastrophic fallout fall off and turn out among certain. And I just, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can say it's going to happen, but it probably won't. And you don't have any power over these people anyway. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be, this is going to be a high information, hotly contested election. Most people are going to turn out anyway. Yeah. 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 So, I, 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 agree, I agree with you on that. So the last question here is, you know, kind of what's the, you know, where do Democrats go? And I guess just liberals, there's a, a piece in the end of the book where you talk about, um, you know, Democrats can be liberal on, on economics, maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. moderate and conciliatory on some of the cultural issues. You know, how do how do we get there, regardless of what happens uh, in twenty four, whether it's Biden yeah. or Trump or, or someone else, maybe? But you know, how do how do Democrats try to? You know, I, I don't I don't want to hear I don't want to hear Van Jones on you know November 9th or you know, whatever saying like this was a reckoning we got to take a hard look in the mirror and all these things and they say that every election right it's like how do they not do that right. <laughs> nothing against right. Van Jones I'm just saying like how do they not do that right. and just kind of be a little more proactive and say okay how do we really get some electoral wins what do you think Well uh you know, if I knew the exact answer to that, I'd, I'd be a happy man, maybe a rich man. I don't know. But uh, I think that if you start from the premise, and I think this is solid, historically speaking, Democrats have done the best and been the most effective as a party, but they've been viewed as the party of the common man and woman, the ordinary American, been viewed as patriotic. I mean, go back to FDR, look at the kinds of you know, very progressive economic program, but yeah. they were not particularly radical in cultural terms at all. Yeah. You know, the Blue Eagle was a symbol and, you know, the lighting of the Christmas tree and Thanksgiving and we're all, paid. I mean, this is like great. This is a great idea. You want to unify Americans. Mm-hmm. And if Democrats could convince themselves that, you know, actually some of the stuff that Obama Mm-hmm. Some of his tropes were pretty good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, why not revive those and say, yeah, we're, we don't want to divide people anymore. We want to bring people together and we want to sort of, yeah, we think we need to tweak the economy and have these kinds of programs because they're good for working people. But we really got to stop all this culture war stuff. It's like just completely fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, here's A, B and C and D over. I'm, you know, we're really going to approach some of these issues differently. And I think that would work. Probably. I mean, if you look at what normal, you look at what the, the center of the American electorate thinks about most of these issues. They're not in the Democrats' wheelhouse on the cultural issues. They're pretty much pretty close to the wheelhouse on some of the dem- economic issues. It's not necessarily the climate stuff, which again, is, I think, very culturized. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a there there that if they moved to the center purposively and tried to do it, it would actually probably work. Mm. Um, but will they do that? As you say, you know, there, there's, there's always going to be a post-election thing. Well, you know, it didn't quite work out like we thought. We got to do things better, mm-hmm. different. But, you know, I'll believe the different when I see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, keep hope alive. And, yeah. you know, we, in a way, I mean, we wrote the book not to give the Democrats advice so much as to point out what kind of party mm-hmm. does America need. It's kind of like back to your dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need a party that your dad would look at and say, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Right. You know. Yeah. Those guys rock. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm with, I totally agree. 
Well, the book is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. It's out now. Uh, so you got the book. Uh, I know you're on Substack. I know you're in all these places. So, you know, any, anywhere else people should find you or best places to look for you? Yeah, definitely the liberal patron because I write a, a column every week for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, post more like once a month. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm here in Yon. I'm on lots of podcasts yeah. like this yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, wonderful podcast with Xavier. That's great. So uh, keep an eye out for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for, for doing this. I, I really uh, have been reading your stuff for a while and I, and I like what, uh, what you have to say. So um, keep putting out the good stuff and I'm sure you'll be very busy this year in the election year. So, uh, so big thanks. Oh, yeah. It's going to be crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> it will. Yes, it will. All righty. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye.